Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 24, Good Vibrations, 1893. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. You'll recall that after episode 23, I wasn't really sure what events I'd cover in episode 24. One possibility was jumping right back into the War of the Currents and the battle for the contract to harness Niagara Falls, which was actually happening concurrently with the lead-up to the World's Fair. However, when I finally sat down to write this episode and realized that I have about 30,000 words of research and notes about Niagara Falls to go through in order to form it into the, say, four to 5,000 words one of these episodes typically runs, well, I thought better of it. And since discussion of the electrification of Niagara Falls will take us into 1895, before we got too far ahead chronologically, I wanted to step back and look at what Tesla was up to during 1893 and 1894 when he wasn't working on either business for the World's Fair or business for the Niagara Falls contract. But before we start in on that, I want to say a big thank you to all of you who have been listening to the podcast while I've been MIA. The download numbers have been steady despite no new episodes for a while, and there have certainly been a lot of you who have joined our Facebook page and left reviews over the last few months. As of this recording, we are nearly at a thousand members. Now, that's pretty small by Facebook group standards, I suppose, but for me, it's huge. I started this podcast because I felt just kind of compelled to do it. Frankly, I was surprised there wasn't a podcast about Tesla's life already. And I really wasn't sure whether anyone would listen. For about two weeks, the first episode had five total downloads. I know for a fact that one of them was me, to test whether it was working, one was my brother, and one was my mom. So, to have thousands of people listening to each episode, people I don't know, and to have so many of you join the Facebook page is really encouraging, and has made me want to get back to business here for a long time. One of the other things that has encouraged me to get my butt in gear to do new episodes are the reviews that people have been kind enough to leave while we've been on, let's say, hiatus. In the interest of time, I won't read out every review, but I do want to thank Firedancer71, LabViewMantic, CVP96, AbeNY, and Gaurav Bata for their five-star reviews on iTunes. Thanks also to Rockinante23, who said, The most complete Tesla history. Very well done, a joy to listen to. Great additional information about the times which puts the events in their correct historical and sociological context. The best podcast I've heard. Likewise, thanks to RDD2323, who called the podcast the best Tesla history I've ever read or heard. An honest look at the human being, dispelling many of the myths we've been told over the years. Mr. Kotowicz is an excellent narrator. His addition of interesting details of the era puts Tesla in true focus in that formative time in our history. I've read many books on Tesla, and this is the best with the most information I've experienced. Air Sea Land from the United States enjoys listening to the podcast during the daily commute. My morning and evening commutes are now soothed with Stephen's narrative. My minor brushes with road rage are retargeted towards men like Edison, Morgan, and Brown. Thank you for this detail-packed podcast. I truly love what I learned from it. Someone who left a five-star review but was less impressed was 2004 Sparky from the United States. Well done, writes 2004 Sparky. 
but not apolitical as hoped. I really enjoy the sound quality and dry humor of the podcast. The chronicling of Tesla's life is clearly presented and accurate. I don't particularly care for occasional misguided political jabs against, quote, modern-day Republicans, conservatives, slash Christians. For someone that is very balanced on more distant historical facts, Mr. Kotowicz struggles to keep his liberal modern political views in check. I guess Stephen would just summarize and name-call me one of the millions of small-base white racist conservatives. Likewise, with a two-star review, and even less impressed, was Beccaz or Beccaz 746 from the United States. 30 seconds spent apologizing for not being able to pronounce Serbian words, and then another few minutes explaining how to rate slash subscribe. Um, unnecessary, we all know. We will do it if so inclined. And then, surprise, surprise, host proudly shows off how racist Republicans are. Well, seems you learned nothing from studying Tesla. Your intellectual mediocrity is painfully boring. I would rather people like you do not learn about Tesla. Ouch, Sparky and Becca's. I thought we were friends. Look, I'm sorry that you feel like I was taking shots at you or at Republicans or at anyone of any political party. That certainly was never my intention. I know I touched on politics a couple of times in the Gilded Age episode and again in the World's Fair episode, but I'm at a loss as to where I came down in favor of one party or another, or where I called anyone of whatever party a racist? In general, my own views of contemporary left and right politics can best be summed up as a plague on both your houses. And politics, of whatever stripe, is a third rail that I really don't want anything to do with on this podcast. So, Sparky, Beckas, if you are still listening, and I hope you are, I would genuinely appreciate it if you could reach out either on the Facebook group or via email at tesla at to let me know more about which episode or episodes you found objectionable, and ideally if you have a time code for the content that upset you, I'd really like to go back and have kind of a fresh listen. As for the apologizing for Serbian words thing, well... I am Canadian, so apologizing is kind of my cultural heritage. Happily, a listener of Serbian descent was kind enough to reach out and let me know that my pronunciations were not terrible, so yay! But, Beccas, I am sorry that you found it annoying. Or rather, I'm sorry, eh? Finally, also on iTunes, we have what I believe is my first ever one-star review. This is from someone calling themselves Prickly Critic. Why ask for reviews if you only show five stars? What a waste of time writing a review. And I genuinely don't know what to make of this one. You, I mean, you get that I don't pick which reviews show up on iTunes, right? It's just whatever reviews people happen to leave. I've just been lucky enough, at least until this episode, to only get five-star reviews. And as for it being a waste of time writing the review, then, then why bother? I guess I did ask for people to write reviews, so I suppose I really have no one to blame but myself. So, thank you, Prickly Critic? Over on Facebook, big thanks to Brock Long, Frank Miles, and G.K. Flint for their reviews. Neil Housen says the podcast is, quote, forensically researched, very entertaining, with FX and daft gags, and way better than any of the Tesla books and docs, with a great mix of geek and cheek. Eek and cheek. Ooh. I like that, Neil. Might have to steal that. 
And listener Lana says, Wonderful podcast. So informative and interesting. I wish my history teachers were this good in telling stories. I would have most definitely had more knowledge of history. Thank you to everyone, well, almost everyone, for their reviews. If you've not had a chance to leave a rating or a review, I hope you'll do so on iTunes or our Facebook group or wherever you get your podcasts. Now then, as for current events, this episode, as I mentioned, and the next one are kind of a part one and part two in a way. We're going to be covering essentially what was going on for Tesla while he was simultaneously working with Westinghouse on both the World's Fair bid and the bid to win the contract to electrify Niagara Falls. This means we'll be looking at both 1893 and 1894. However, because we've already covered events from 1893 previously, and because there's just so much of note that happens in 1894, and since we're already jumping all over the timeline anyhow, I'm going to use this opportunity to give you half of the interesting things and people from 1894 now, so that next time, when we are actually talking about 1894, this section of the show doesn't run for, like, an hour. So, here goes with half of the key events and people of 1894. On January 7th, 1894, William Kennedy Dixon receives a patent for motion picture film in the United States. March 1st, in the United Kingdom, the Local Government Act of 1894 is passed. It reforms local government in Britain, creating a system of urban and rural districts with elected councils that endure today, and gives women, irrespective of marital status, the right to vote and stand in local, but not national, elections. On March 12th, Coca-Cola is sold in bottles for the first time. The bottle's distinctive sinuous shape became so synonymous with the beverage that the bottle itself would later be trademarked. On March 25th, Coxey's Army of the Unemployed, the first significant protest march in the United States, departs from Mazalon, Ohio, for Washington, D.C. This march, and the growing despair of the unemployed, is a consequence of the continuing Panic of 1893 that we talked about last episode one of the worst depressions in American history. Coxey's army arrives in Washington on May 1st, where Coxey himself is arrested on the Capitol grounds. Also on May 1st, in Cleveland, Ohio, the May Day riots break out. Cleveland's unemployment rate grew dramatically during the Panic of 1893, and during the annual May Day, or International Workers' Day, celebrations in that city, riots broke out among the unemployed who condemned civic leaders for their ineffective relief measures. May Day had started as a commemoration of those who had died during the Haymarket Affair of 1886, when during a general strike in Chicago, Illinois, an unknown person threw a bomb into the crowd, prompting police to fire into the crowd, killing civilians and police alike. The growing number of strike actions and violent protests that began to center around May Day led U.S. President Grover Cleveland to propose a bill that would make a Labor Day in September a national public holiday in the hopes of taking the wind out of the sails of May Day as a worker-related holiday, and hopefully getting away from commemorating what was essentially a riot. It worked, and May Day celebrations diminished to virtually nothing in the United States because of the creation of Labor Day. Also in May, bubonic plague breaks out in Hong Kong. It also breaks out this same year in Canton Province in mainland China, I had no idea the plague was still a thing at any point in the last, say, several centuries, but by the end of 1894, the plague had killed more than 2,500 people. On June 30th, the Tower Bridge in London opens for traffic. Tower Bridge, built between 1886 and 1894, is a combined suspension and bascule bridge, meaning that its deck can lift up in two pieces 
to allow ships to pass through. An Act of Parliament was passed in 1885, authorizing the bridge's construction. It specified details of the bridge's size and layout, and it also specified that the construction had to be in the Gothic style. There were concerns that a bare metal suspension bridge in the heart of London, like the Golden Gate Bridge in the United States, would be garish and clash with the aesthetic beauty of London's ancient landmarks, such as the Tower of London, which is right next to the bridge and which is where the bridge gets its name. I guess whoever built modern buildings in London, like the Gherkin or the Shard, which if you ever look at it looks like something a supervillain would design, uh, didn't get the same memo. Tower Bridge has become an iconic symbol of London, to the point where it's usually confused with London Bridge. You know, the one that's always falling down. They are, in fact, separate bridges, situated about a half mile from one another along the Thames. And that's your fun fact for today. On July 6th, a fire at the site of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago destroys most of the remaining buildings. You'll recall the buildings were built to be temporary anyway, but the fire certainly sped things along. On August 31st, New Zealand enacts the world's first minimum wage law to take effect on January 1st, 1895. And on November the 1st, Russian Emperor Alexander III dies, and is succeeded by his son, Nicholas II, who, unbeknownst to anyone, would be the last Tsar of Russia. Famous births in 1894 include New Year's baby, Satyendra Nath Bose, an Indian physicist and fellow of the Royal Society specializing in theoretical physics. He's best known for his work on quantum mechanics in the early 1920s, providing the foundation for Bose-Einstein statistics and the theory of the Bose-Einstein condensate. A self-taught scholar and polymath, he had a wide range of interests in varied fields, including physics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, mineralogy, philosophy, arts, literature, and music. The class of particles that obey Bose-Einstein statistics, bosons, was named in Bose's honor by Paul Dirac. You may have heard of the Higgs boson in recent years, that's a class of the bosons named for Satyendra Nath Bose. On February 1st, American film director John Ford was born. In a career that spanned more than 50 years, Ford directed over 140 films, although most of his silent films are now lost. He's widely regarded as one of the most important and influential filmmakers of his generation. He directed such classics as Stagecoach, The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and The Grapes of Wrath. His four Academy Awards for Best Director in 1935, 1940, 1941, and 1952 remain a record. Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman were among those who named him one of the greatest directors of all time. On May 27th, Dashiell Hammett, American author of hard-boiled detective stories, was born. Widely regarded as one of the finest mystery writers of all time, in his obituary in the New York Times, Hammett was described as the dean of the hard-boiled school of detective fiction. Among the enduring characters he created are Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon, Nick and Nora Charles from the Thin Man series, and The Continental Op from Red Harvest and The Dane Curse. He wrote his final novel in 1934, more than 25 years before his death. Hammett devoted much of the rest of his life to left-wing activism and was blacklisted during the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s. Leutnant Kurt Winkens was born August 1st, 1894. He was a German World War I fighter ace who holds a unique pioneering role in the history of aerial combat. Winkens was the first fighter pilot to down an enemy aircraft using a synchronized gun, that is, 
a forward-mounted machine gun synchronized to fire bullets in between the rotating blades of an airplane's propeller. Vinkins, flying a monoplane, a single-winged aircraft that you don't usually associate with the First World War, shot down a French biplane in July 1915. Happily, the French crew, though wounded, were able to land their heavily damaged plane safely in friendly territory and live to tell the tale. Unfortunately for Vinkins, his luck would run out in September 1916 when he was shot down over France. On October the 14th, Edward Eslin Cummings, better known as E.E. E. Cummings, all lowercase, thank you, was born. An American poet, painter, essayist, author, and playwright, he wrote approximately 2,900 poems, two autobiographical novels, four plays, and several essays. He's often regarded as one of the most important American poets of the 20th century. On November 8th, Claude Beck was born. Beck was an American cardiac surgeon famous for innovating various cardiac surgery techniques, including performing the first defibrillation in 1947. He was the first American professor of cardiovascular surgery from 1952 through 1965, and he was a nominee for the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1952. And on December 8th, E.C. Seeger, American cartoonist and creator of the character Popeye, was born. Famous deaths in 1894 include, on January the 1st, a rough start to the year for the electrical community when Heinrich Hertz dies. Hertz was a German physicist who first conclusively proved the existence of the electromagnetic waves theorized by James Clerk Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. The unit of frequency, cycle per second, was named the Hertz in his honor. Charles Romley Adler Wright died on the 25th of June, 1894. An English lecturer in chemistry and physics researcher at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London, Wright was a founder of the Royal Institute of Chemistry. He's probably best remembered today for two discoveries. The first, the discovery of aluminum, or, since he was English, aluminium and timonide, recognized today as a compound semiconductor with potential use in high-frequency, low-power consumption microelectronics, as well as in gamma radiation detection. His second discovery, well... It seems that in his noble quest to develop a non-addictive alternative to morphine, Wright accidentally became the first person to synthesize diamorphine, a more potent, more addictive form of morphine better known as heroin. Oops. And as I mentioned a minute ago, on November the 1st, Nicholas II became Tsar of Russia after the death of his father, Alexander III. Emperor of Russia, King of Poland, and Grand Duke of Finland, Alexander III was a highly reactionary monarch, reversing liberal reforms of his father, Alexander II, known as the Tsar Liberator, for his 1861 emancipation of the serfs. Under the influence of his counselors, Alexander III opposed reforms that limited his autocratic rule, he russified minorities, and launched violent pogroms against Jews in Russia. Despite this, because during his reign Russia fought no major wars, he is often styled the peacemaker. But here's one of those little it's-a-small-world moments in history for you to consider. Alexander III's father, Alexander II, was assassinated in 1881 by a revolutionary organization known as Norodnaya Volya, the People's Will, who wanted even more dramatic reforms than what Alexander II had brought in. With the tightening autocratic fist of Alexander III, after his ascension to the throne, the revolutionaries began plotting his assassination too. This plot, however, was uncovered by the Okhrana, the Tsarist secret police, 
and five of the conspirators were captured and hanged in May 1887. One of those conspirators was named Alexander Ulyanov, the older brother of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to history by his alias, Vladimir Lenin. The execution of his brother is what led Lenin to embrace revolutionary socialist politics, and you can draw a straight line from the execution of his brother to Lenin's radicalization, his leadership of the Bolsheviks, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the execution of Alexander III's son, Tsar Nicholas II, and his whole family, yes, even poor Anastasia, in 1918 by the Bolsheviks at Lenin's order. One wonders how the whole history of the 20th century might have been different had Alexander III not been such an autocrat. There's actually a really interesting thought experiment piece I found recently in the New York Times about what would have happened if the Russian Revolution hadn't happened. Basically, our world would be unrecognizable, probably for the better. I'll include a link in this week's show notes on our site, teslapodcast.com. Now then, to begin this episode, we need to get in the Wayback Machine and do a little time traveling, or at least a little time sorting, because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the chronology here is a little weird. One of the challenges in trying to present the life and times of Tesla is to do so in a way and in an order that makes sense to us now looking back on the man's whole life and his work. Doing any kind of history necessarily involves sorting and ordering information into a narrative, telling it as a story that helps us make sense of events in the broader context of the man's life, in a way that just he wouldn't have been able to do as he lived it. His life, just like yours and mine, was messy and a jumble of varied and competing tasks that all overlapped. Trying to narrate them that way as they happened would just be impossible to follow. So, I've been jumping around a bit, and frankly ignoring a few things temporarily, as I sought to outline the War of the Currents, which, as I mentioned, still isn't over, by the way, and get us through the Chicago World's Fair. But what I've been ignoring is important to cover, and that's what we're going to do today and in the next episode. But as we talk today, try and keep in mind that everything from this point on in this episode is happening in 1893, after Tesla returned from his European lecture in episode 20, and while he's helping Westinghouse prepare for the World's Fair, and then giving his show-stopping presentations in Chicago. The events in this episode are also happening alongside Tesla's participation, as I mentioned, in the Westinghouse bid to win the contract to harness Niagara Falls to produce electricity, which was also happening alongside the World's Fair business, and which we haven't even mentioned really yet, because it'll likely be episode 26 or 27 by the time we get there. Basically, as you listen, just keep in mind that while it may seem like Tesla was just doing some leisurely experiments in his lab and giving the occasional lecture, he was actually insanely busy and trying to keep a lot of balls in the air with all these competing priorities, just like your life and mine. So then, if you'll cast your mind back to Tesla's return from Europe in episode 20, you'll recall that he reopened his lab on South 5th Avenue, hired some workers and a secretary, and got back to work. So, what was Tesla working on between World's Fair business and the Niagara Falls contract bidding? Well, he spent the winter of 1892-1893 working on his high-frequency apparatus. This all came out of his recent European trip, which we covered in episode 20. 
Remember that Lord Raleigh had told him that he was destined to discover great things, and Sir William Crookes, in attendance at Tesla's lecture, had suggested the possibility of using electromagnetic waves to transmit messages. And there was one other element that had inspired Tesla's new direction, which we touched on briefly at the end of episode 20, that bears mentioning in more depth, as it shows Tesla's grand vision for what would occupy much of the rest of his career, for good and for ill. While Tesla was still back in Europe, recovering from his breakdown after the death of his mother, he went hiking in the mountains and got caught in a thunderstorm, finding shelter just in time. As he described in his autobiography, quote, Somehow the rain was delayed until, all of a sudden, there was a lightning flash, and a few moments after, a deluge. This observation set me thinking. It was manifest that the two phenomena were closely related, as cause and effect and a little reflection led me to the conclusion that the electrical energy involved in the precipitation was inconsiderable, the function of the lightning being much like that of a sensitive trigger. Here was a stupendous possibility of achievement. If we could produce electric effects of the required quality, this whole planet and the conditions of existence on it could be transformed. The sun raises the water of the oceans, and the wind drives it to distant regions where it remains in a state of most delicate balance. If it were in our power to upset it when and wherever desired, this mighty life-sustaining stream could be at will controlled. We could irrigate arid deserts, create lakes and rivers, and provide motive power in unlimited amounts. The consummation of this idea depended on our ability to develop electric forces of the order of those in nature. It seemed a hopeless undertaking, but I made up my mind to try it, and immediately on my return to the United States in the summer of 1892, Work was begun, which was to me all the more attractive, because a means of the same kind of energy was necessary for the successful transmission of energy without wires. Thinking back to his experiments of fall 1892, in which he grounded his oscillating transformer, Tesla now believed that if he could scale up that transformer, he might be able to harness the Earth itself. And so Tesla set himself to discovering a way of using the Earth to transmit both message and power. More on that in a minute. Because first, and because he apparently didn't have enough on his plate already, that winter, Tesla also agreed to do more lectures. One before the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia on the 25th of February, 1893, and another a week later at the National Electric Light Association in St. Louis. While he was still months away from the true national fame that would come his way after the World's Fair, Tesla was already attracting the attention of both reporters and the public. He couldn't deny that in addition to technical achievement, on some level he also craved recognition for his genius and accomplishments. So, while interacting with his peers was an inducement to making these lectures, they were also a means for Tesla to establish himself as one of the era's preeminent men of electrical science, on par with Edison, both for his colleagues, the press, and a wider public. As we'll see next episode... For a time, Tesla would spend almost as much energy building and polishing his reputation in the press and high society as he did on actual invention. At least as a time saver, the lectures Tesla gave were similar to what he had done in Europe, and acted as a kind of dry run for the presentations he would give later in the year during his triumphant displays at the Chicago World's Fair. Each offered, quote, philosophical musings on the relationship between electricity and light, along with sensational demonstrations. And Tesla, ever the showman, did not disappoint. In Philadelphia, he started strong, passing 200,000 volts through his body. As he described in the published version of the lecture, quote, My arm is now transversed by a powerful electric current, 
vibrating at about a rate of one million times a second. All around me, the electrostatic force makes itself felt, and the air molecules and particles of dust flying about are acted upon and are hammering violently against my body. So great is this agitation of particles that when the lights are turned out, you may see streams of feeble light appear on some parts of my skin. When such a streamer breaks out at any part of the body, it produces a sensation like the prickling of a needle. Were the potentials sufficiently high and the frequency of the vibration rather low, the skin would probably be ruptured under the tremendous strain, and the blood would rush out with great force in the form of fine spray. The air is more violently agitated, and you see streams of light now break forth from my fingertips and from the whole hand. The streamers offer no particular inconvenience, except that in the ends of the fingertips a burning sensation is felt. Ruptured skin, exploding blood, burning fingertips? Oh, is that all? It's a wonder more people weren't doing these kind of demonstrations. The published text of the Philadelphia Lectures runs a hundred typeset pages and covers a lot of ground, so we won't cover it all here. Tesla reviewed different means by which electricity could produce light using electrostatics, impedance, resonance, and high frequencies. He once again pulled his lightsaber trick, spinning glowing tubes around the darkened theater like, as one account put it, quote, the white spokes of a wheel of glowing moonbeams. Perhaps most notably in these lectures, Tesla, before anyone else, outlined in broad strokes the possibilities of wireless communication and explained, at least in a rudimentary form, all the major components that such a system would need. More than a quarter century later, in his autobiography, Tesla claimed that he encountered such opposition to his discussion of what he termed wireless telegraphy at that time that, quote, only a small part of what I had intended to say was embodied in the speech. Now, some in the more conspiratorial corners of Tesla fandom online will suggest that this opposition is yet another sign that big business interests and the power companies were trying to keep Tesla's ideas down and torpedo Tesla's plans for worldwide free energy. In actuality, the opposition came from friends and supporters, primarily, and had far more to do with the underlying physics that Tesla was using to make his claims. Tesla, as we've discussed before, was a believer in the 19th century theory of the ether, an all-pervasive medium between the planets and the stars. More than a decade earlier, in 1881, a famous experiment by Michelson and Morley attempted unsuccessfully to measure the luminiferous ether. At the dawn of the 20th century, Albert Einstein used the failure of the Michelson-Morley experiment as part of his argument for overthrowing the idea of the ether when his special theory of relativity introduced the concept of space-time and proved that the idea of the ether was unnecessary for explaining how light and energy can travel through space. And, as mentioned, Tesla never ever to his dying day accepted the arguments for relativity, even after experimental proof began to be offered, such as, for example, gravitational lensing, not to mention the splitting of the atom, which seems kind of definitive proof if you ask me, but I digress. Anyway, in 1893, belief in the ether wouldn't have been unusual or been anything that anyone would get out of joint about. Instead, what really got Tesla into hot water with his fellow engineers and scientists was his adherence to a theory that was marginal and considered a bit crackpot even in the 1890s. That theory was known as Mach's Principle, after its originator, Ernst Mach, who we met in Prague a number of episodes ago, and who remained there continuing his work. Mach's Principle shaped how Tesla understood the nature of the ether and how energy and electricity propagated through it. 
Mach's principle would also greatly influence Tesla's theory about wireless transmission of power and how energy might be harnessed from and transmitted through the Earth. So, what was Mach's principle? Well, while Mach argued for its scientificness, we can really only understand this principle as a kind of quasi-mystical worldview. Mach hypothesized that all things in the universe were radically interrelated. The mass of the Earth, according to this theory, was dependent on the supergravitational force from all the stars in the universe. There was no separation between things. Mach himself acknowledged this view's correspondence to Buddhist thinking. I myself am reminded of the old joke, what did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. It is all the more interesting that Tesla bought into a theory with such clearly mystical implications, given his professed materialism. It's not, however, the first or last time we'll see this tension displayed by Tesla. We'll see much later in life Tesla adopt terminology straight out of Hinduism to explain his thinking about certain phenomenon. As I think I've said before, despite his professed unbelief, I think Tesla's upbringing in the intensely religious household of an Orthodox priest, from a family of Orthodox priests no less, shaped him in ways that were lasting, even if he was never a traditionally religious believer. What got Tesla into trouble with his scientific peers, and what his friends said would scare away potential investors, were claims he made based on beliefs derived from this mock principle that were too out there for scientists of his day to accept. The biggest one, and I don't claim to understand the difference here, was Tesla's claim that he could create electromagnetic oscillations that displayed transverse waves as well as longitudinal wave characteristics. The specific difference between the two isn't important for our purposes, thankfully, other than to say that while transverse waves were well understood, the claims that Tesla was making for longitudinal waves, that they carried much more energy than transverse waves, was based on the Mach principle and was a bridge too far for his contemporaries. In fact, as Tesla's writing more than 25 years later demonstrated, he clung stubbornly to this belief for the rest of his life, despite all opposition to these claims, which came from just about everybody in the field. Tesla wrote, quote, There is no thing endowed with life, from man who is enslaving the elements to the nimblest creature in all this world that does not sway in its turn. Whenever action is born from force, though it be infinitesimal, the cosmic balance is upset and universal motion results. Now, to some degree, this does play into Tesla's belief about humans as meat machines, who generate none of their own thoughts or ideas, but which are instead just responding to external stimuli. Thanks to Mach, however, Tesla now began to believe that these stimuli came from everywhere in the universe. Tesla biographer Mark Seifer, who appears to himself be a modern-day defender of the ether theory based on some of his other writings, spends a lot of time connecting Tesla's work to the concept of the ether in Wizard, his biography of the inventor. I'm going to skip over all that content since I think the science is pretty solidly on the side of the ether not actually being a thing. So, getting back to the lectures. We do see some of Tesla's vision and prognostication come to the fore in these presentations, particularly regarding the finite resources of the planet. Back in the late 19th century, and well into the 20th actually, virtually no one was thinking about or worried about whether we might run out of natural resources. This is understandable given that humanity had only recently begun to industrialize. There weren't nearly as many of us back then, there were only about 1.6 billion people on the planet in the 1890s, and most of those people didn't live the kind of resource-intensive Western lifestyle that so many of us are lucky enough to enjoy today. 
Heck, the American western frontier had only just finished being settled by American homesteaders. If anyone stopped to think about it at all, the world and its resources must surely have seemed inexhaustible. Tesla, however, could take the long view in a way that many contemporaries couldn't. And realizing that the world actually was a finite place, and that the natural resources we depend on as fuel to produce electricity and power our lives and industry would eventually run out, he spoke out about it. What will man do when the forests disappear, he asked his Philadelphia audience, or when the coal deposits are exhausted? Only one thing, according to our present knowledge, will remain. That is to transmit power at great distances. Man will go to the waterfalls and to the tides. Tesla was an early proponent of harnessing renewable sources of energy. And while tidal power and hydroelectric generators were all well and good, stay tuned for the next War of the Currents episode where we hear all about the harnessing of Niagara Falls, Tesla, as usual, was dreaming bigger. He intended nothing less, he said, than constructing equipment to, quote, attach our engines to the wheelwork of the universe. What exactly did Tesla mean by this? Well, this is where he tied in his ideas about the possibility for wireless transmission of energy. I firmly believe, he said, that it is practicable to disturb by means of powerful machines the electrostatic conditions of the Earth and thus transmit intelligible signals and perhaps power. Taking into consideration the speed of electrical impulses with this new technology, all ideas of distance must vanish, as humans will be instantaneously interconnected. Tesla's experiments were still in early stages, so he didn't yet feel he had a grasp of the electrical capacity of the Earth or its potential charge, but he knew the size of the Earth and the speed of light, and that was enough to get him started theorizing about the optimum wavelengths for transmitting impulses through the planet. If ever we can ascertain at what period the Earth's charge, when disturbed or oscillates with respect to an oppositely electrified system or known circuit, we shall know a fact possibly of the greatest importance to the welfare of the human race, he told the crowds. He also produced for the audience a diagram that depicted how to set up the aerials, receivers, transmitter, and ground connection for moving electricity through the Earth. When the electric oscillation is set up, Tesla said, there will be a movement of electricity in and out of the transmitter, and alternating currents will pass through the Earth. In this manner, neighboring points on the Earth's surface within a certain radius will be disturbed. Tesla also noticed, quote, Theoretically, it would not require a great amount of energy to produce a disturbance perceptible at a great distance, or even all over the surface of the globe. Tesla left Philadelphia by rail at the end of February for the National Electric Light Association Convention in St. Louis. Accompanying him was T.C. Martin, who we've mentioned before, and who we'll spend more time with in the next episode. Martin was covering both lectures for the Electrical Engineer magazine, and on the train ride, he proposed a textbook based on Tesla's collected writings. The first half would be about the AC polyphase system, with chapters on motor design, single-phase and polyphase circuits, armatures, and transformers, and the second half would be made up of Tesla's lecture on high-frequency phenomenon that he had given in New York, London, and now Philadelphia. Martin would write the introduction. The book, The Inventions, Researches, and Writings of Nikola Tesla, would eventually run almost 500 pages, and we'll talk about it more next time. On February 28th, Tesla arrived in St. Louis to give his lecture, and the city was vibrating with anticipation. The event was booked into the Exhibition Theater, but that venue proved too small given the interest, so it was moved to the Grand Music Entertainment Hall, which seated 4,000. On that cold February night, however, 
The theater was packed to bursting with several thousand additional spectators. Surely a fire code violation if ever there was one. On the streets, over 4,000 copies of a journal containing a biographical sketch of Tesla were sold to eager St. Louisans? St. Louisans? Uh, Let's say citizens. Eager citizens. The demand for seats to the event was also so great that tickets were being scalped for three to five dollars. That's the equivalent of between $85 and $140 today. Think about the last time you heard of anyone so eager to get into a technical scientific demonstration that they were buying scalp tickets, let alone $140 scalp tickets, and you'll get some sense of just how crazy the appetite for Tesla's electrical wonders was becoming in 1890s America. At the opening ceremony, both Tesla and James I. Ayer general manager of the local municipal electric light and power company, who had invited Tesla to give the speech, were introduced into the National Electric Light Association as honorary members. After this, Mr. Ayer introduced the inventor to the audience with, quote, a sort of reverence as one who has an almost magic power over the vast hidden secrets of nature, and presented Tesla with a giant flower arrangement, a magnificent floral shield, quote, wrought in white carnations and red beauty roses. Tesla's presentation that evening was the same one given days earlier in Philadelphia, so we can skip over the details, except to say that it included all of Tesla's usual flair for the dramatic. Near the end of the performance, for instance, Tesla held up a phosphorescent bulb in one hand and announced that he would illuminate it by touching his other hand to his oscillating transformer. When this lamp burst to light, recalled Tesla, with some frustration it seems to me, the audience was so startled that, quote, There was a stampede in the two upper galleries, and they all rushed out. They thought it was some part of the devil's work and ran away. That was the way my experiments were received. After the lecture, much to his chagrin, Tesla was mobbed in the lobby by several hundred people, all eager to congratulate him and shake his hand. Never a fan of crowds and always a germaphobe, Tesla, who was social distancing before it was fashionable, found the whole episode overwhelming. As the New York Times reported, Tesla, quote, had expected a little gathering of expert electricians, and though he went through the ordeal bravely, no power on earth would induce him to try anything like it again. It's worth noting before we move on that in attendance at the St. Louis lecture was Professor George Forbes, an engineer from Glasgow. Forbes was a consultant with the Niagara Power Commission, which was working to harness Niagara Falls to produce hydroelectric power. Forbes had enthusiastically recommended the Tesla AC system from Westinghouse to the commission. We'll have more to say about Forbes in two episodes' time, when we turn our eyes to the last major battle of the War of the Currents. While Tesla was dissuaded from going into too much detail in his public lectures about transmitting messages and power via the Earth, in private, Tesla turned his attention to just that problem. A point of great importance, Tesla wrote, would be first to know what is the electrical capacity of the Earth, What charge does it contain if electrified? To answer these questions, Tesla returned to his idea of resonance and to the apparatus he had first put together in the fall of 1891. In the same way that you can shatter a wine glass if you find the right resonant frequency, Tesla found that electromagnetic waves of a particular frequency could make tuned circuits respond, that is, resonate, if you could align the inductance and capacitance in the transmitter and receiver. To study how high-frequency currents traveled through the Earth, Tesla grounded one terminal of his oscillating transformer to the city water mains, while connecting the other terminal to, quote, an insulated body of large surface, what we would today call an antenna, 
on the roof of his laboratory downtown on South 5th Avenue. When Tesla adjusted to the frequency of the transmitted signal, he could make a tightly stretched wire in the receiver vibrate and produce an audible hum. Tesla made this receiver portable, packing the whole thing into a small wooden box so that he could carry it with him as he wandered Manhattan. With the transmitter running back at his lab, Tesla ranged all over the city, stopping periodically to ground the receiver and see if he could detect the oscillating current produced by the transmitter and its telltale hum. He would often take the receiver uptown to the Gerlach Hotel and found that he could detect the current there, about 1.3 miles, or just over 2 kilometers, from his lab. However, to Tesla's frustration, his reception of the Gerlach was at best intermittent, even when he knew the generator was running just fine at the lab. Tesla determined that this difficulty was due to the generator producing waves not at a single frequency, but rather at several frequencies. In particular, it did not produce oscillations with the same time period, and this made it difficult to tune the receiver to the right frequency. This variation in frequency was due to the technological limitations Tesla had to deal with in his era. Slight changes in the speed of the steam engine that drove the alternator caused a variation in the frequency. Necessity being the mother of invention, Tesla decided that he needed a better power source. So he set out to devise a new AC generator with more reliable performance. To accomplish this, Tesla combined the reciprocating motion of a piston engine with the more traditional generating coils and magnetic field. Steam or compressed air drove the piston back and forth, and a shaft connected to the piston moved the generating coils through the magnetic field. Keeping the pressure high and the stroke of the piston short, Tesla was able to move the coils far more quickly than a traditional rotating generator, and hence produce currents with higher frequencies than were previously possible. The oscillations produced were completely isochronous, which is a fancy way of saying of equal length, to the point where Tesla boasted that it could be used to run a clock. Having achieved his objective, Tesla called this new machine an oscillator, and he filed patent applications covering several versions in August and December 1893. It was one of the new inventions he debuted during his lectures at the Chicago World's Fair. He installed one of his super-precise oscillators in his South Fifth Avenue laboratory, that ran on 350 pounds of pressure. With this oscillator, Tesla could power 50 incandescent lamps, several arc lights, and a variety of motors, and it was one of the pieces he would regularly show off to visitors to the lab. Tesla felt his oscillator would be the solution to the energy loss inherent in electrical generating stations of the time. Estimates were that just 5% of the potential energy in the coal used to power the stations was actually converted into electric light for consumers. The remaining 95% was lost due to thermal inefficiency of boilers and steam engines, mechanical losses arising from using belts to connect engines and generators, and electrical losses to transformers and distribution lines. Tesla, something of a proto-conservationist, likened this level of inefficiency to being, quote, on a par with the wanton destruction of whole forests for the sake of a few sticks of lumber. Reading this quote reminds me of an old Looney Tunes cartoon called Lumber Jerks, featuring two gophers, Mac and Tosh. The forest they live in is cut down and shipped off to a lumber mill. The most striking image for me was always the big mechanical claw that picks up a huge tree trunk by one end and shoves it through a giant pencil sharpener, grinding it down to make a single toothpick. Only getting 5% efficiency from your power source is a little bit like that. Thank you. You're so kind. Though he hoped his oscillators might be another major invention he could sell, Tesla found no enthusiasm for the project on the broader market. There were steam turbines already coming to market that were more efficient than Tesla's oscillator. 
These turbines could be directly coupled to existing electric generators, with the additional benefit that they could be scaled up to deliver power to larger and larger generators, none of which was true for Tesla's oscillator. In addition to his electric oscillator, Tesla also tried developing a mechanical oscillator, very similar in design, that could regulate the waves produced by his transmitter. While it turned out to be not particularly well suited to the task, Tesla nevertheless was fascinated by its properties. As he later recalled, quote, I had installed one of my mechanical oscillators with the object of using it in the exact determination of various physical constants. The machine was bolted in a vertical position to a platform supported on elastic cushions and, when operated by compressed air, performed minute oscillations absolutely isochronous, that is to say, consuming rigorously equal intervals of time. One day, as I was making some observations, I stepped on the platform, and the vibrations imparted to it by the machine were transmitted to my body. The sensation experienced was as strange as agreeable, and I asked my assistant to try. They did so, and were mystified and pleased like myself. Tesla, and soon his assistants, who tried the platform, began to experience positive physical changes due to what they christened mechanical therapy. We used to finish our meals quickly and rush back to the laboratory, Tesla said. We suffered from dyspepsia and various stomach troubles, biliousness, constipation, flatulence, and other disturbances, all natural results of such irregular habit. But after only a week of application, during which I improved the technique and my assistants learned how to take the treatment to their best advantage, all those forms of sickness disappeared, as by enchantment, and for nearly four years, while the machine was in use, we were all in excellent health. In addition to his assistants, visitors to Tesla's laboratory would also try out this mechanical therapy. By the early 1890s, Mark Twain was one such regular amongst these visitors. Twain and Tesla traveled in some of the same social circles and so had run into each other on occasion at the Players Club, where they were both members, or Delmonico's, where they would both dine, or at the artist Robert Reed's studio. One night, in Twain's word, quote, the worldwide illustrious electrician had joined the Reed party. The group spent the night joking and telling stories and singing songs, particularly On the Road to Mandalay by Rudyard Kipling, who was friend to both Tesla and Twain. At some point, Tesla recounted for Twain the possibly apocryphal story that I have mentioned before, about one of Twain's books saving his life when he was a boy and bedridden with a case of malaria, which endeared Tesla to Twain for life, bringing the writer to tears. Twain was fascinated by invention and inventors. While he married into money and made his own fortune as a writer and speaker, Twain frittered it all away on a series of bad investments, including, chiefly, an automatic typesetting machine that was supposed to be driven by an AC motor. At one point in the late 1880s, Twain had sunk a lump sum of $50,000, or about $1.3 million today, into the device and was paying its erstwhile inventor, a James W. Page, about $3,000, or more than $80,000 a month, to keep working on this thing. Historical side note, the typesetter never worked, and Twain was so in debt by the time he finally gave up on it that he eventually had to do a series of around-the-world lecture tours to regain his fortune. The lectures kept him and his family away from the United States for years at a time. So, given this proclivity for inventions, it's only natural that Twain, as probably the most famous man in the world in those decades, would eventually find his way into Tesla's orbit. He came to the laboratory in the worst shape, Tesla later wrote, suffering from a variety of distressing and dangerous ailments. But in less than two months, he regained his old vigor and ability of enjoying life to the fullest extent, I read here from Margaret Cheney's book, 
Tesla, Man Out of Time. Like the O'Neill book, on which she draws heavily, Cheney embellishes her account of the following incident by giving everyone dialogue. We ultimately have only O'Neill's word that this particular incident happened. Remember, much of O'Neill's book consists of him essentially saying, so one time Tesla told me that. And he gives dialogue that Cheney paraphrases that I assume he would say Tesla had told him. But despite all that, I read this account here because, well, it's a pretty funny story. Come over here, said Tesla, and I'll show you something that will make a big revolution in every hospital and home as soon as I'm able to get the thing into working form. He led his guests to the corner where a strange platform was mounted on rubber padding. When he flipped a switch, it began to vibrate rapidly and silently. Twain stepped forward eager. Let me try it, Tesla, please. No, no, it needs work. Please. Tesla chuckled. All right, Mark, but don't stay on too long. Come off when I give you the word. He called to an attendant to throw the switch. Twain, in his usual white suit and black string tie, found himself humming and vibrating on the platform like a gigantic bumblebee. He was delighted. He whooped and waved his arms. The others watched in amusement. After a time, the inventor said, All right, Mark, you've had enough. Come down now. Not by a jugful, said the humorist. I'm enjoying this. But seriously, you had better come down, insisted Tesla. Believe me, it's best that you do so. Twain only laughed. You couldn't get me off this with a derrick. The words were scarcely out of his mouth when suddenly he stopped talking, bit his lower lip, straightened his body, and walked stiffly but suddenly from the platform. Quick, Tesla, where is it? snapped Clemens, half begging, half demanding. Right over here, through that little door in the corner, said Tesla. And the inventor helped him down with a smile and propelled him in the direction of the restroom. The laxative effects of the vibrator was well known to him and his assistants. Now, there's plenty wrong with that account. Tesla only ever called Twain Mr. Clemens, so far as we know, and he wouldn't have called him Mark since his real first name was Sam. Twain also didn't start wearing his trademark white linen suit all year round until December 1906. Indeed, the best photos we have of Twain in Tesla's lab show him in a dark suit. I'll post one with this week's show notes. The white suit is so synonymous with Twain, though, that we can perhaps forgive a bit of creative anachronism and embellishment on the part of Cheney. And while, yes, all of this is nitpicky of me, I point it out just as a reminder that such embellishment is another reason to take Cheney's book, and its inspiration, O'Neill's book, with a grain of salt. You couldn't guess I've also read a lot about Mark Twain slash Samuel Clemens as part of the research I've done for a novel about Tesla and Twain's friendship. Once this Tesla podcast wraps up, I've toyed with the idea of doing a Twain The Life and Times podcast as a follow-up, since I've already done all the research. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is, if this event didn't actually happen, well, I kind of want it to have happened. Twain himself often said that you shouldn't let the facts get in the way of a good story, so he'd probably appreciate such a quality fabrication. What is true, however, is that Twain, always looking for an angle to make a buck, asked Tesla if he could sell the high-frequency electrotherapy machines to rich widows in Europe upon his next sojourn. Tesla naturally agreed. We'll revisit this mechanical oscillator in a future episode when we talk about Tesla's supposed earthquake machine. 1893 was a momentous year for Tesla, beginning with his incredibly successful lectures in Philadelphia and St. Louis, and capped by his magnificent performance at the World's Fair. And Tesla knew it. It is difficult to give you an idea of how I am respected here in the scientific community, Tesla wrote to his Uncle Peter at Christmas 1893. 
I received many letters from some of the greatest minds proposing that I stay the course. They say that there are enough educated men, but few with ideas. They inspire me instead of taking me away from my work. I have received many awards, and there will be more. Think how things are that I recently received a photograph from Edison with the inscription, To Tesla, from Edison. I know that I give Edison a hard time on this show, and while the rivalry between the two great inventors has been, I think, overblown amongst Tesla fandom, it's important that we step back and take this comment from Tesla for what it is. Edison was, even at the time, the most famous inventor in the world. To Tesla, at least before he actually met the man, Edison was a hero, an idol. And despite their falling out, it was clearly deeply moving to Tesla that not only did the great man, his idol, know his name, but that Edison took time to, unprompted, send an autographed photo to him, while the War of the Currents was still being fought, no less. Who's your hero, your idol? How would you feel if they knew your name and your accomplishments? What if they sent you some token or memento, just because, as a sign of affection and admiration? Wouldn't that mean a great deal to you? Wouldn't it be evidence to you that you had truly arrived by virtue of talent and struggle? I think it would to me, and I think it certainly did to Tesla. Next time, we'll spend more time with Tesla after his triumph at the World's Fair. 1894 would be a year of fame, glitz, and glamour for Tesla, as he worked to raise his profile and polish his reputation among New York's high society. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show via your social media. If you can take a minute or two to leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, it would be a huge help to the show. Past episodes, as well as the show notes for this episode, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. Remember to sign up for our email list. That will get you notices about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and times. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.